ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so last time when we started discussing the nullifiers of the wudu, the different types of things that can break the wudu of a person. And we spoke about sleep, and the conclusion was that deep sleep breaks the wudu of a person, but light sleep, where you still have some degree of perception, does not break your wudu. And then we also spoke about al-istihadah, and that is the blood that exits from the woman outside of her normal period, that breaks the wudu. However, in that case, the woman simply has to make the wudu before each prayer and pray and it was mentioned that she can make the wudu three times a day instead of five by delaying the dhuhr prayer to its end time and then the asr to its beginning time and the maghrib to its end time and isha to its beginning time meaning a woman who has that bleeding that occurs outside of her period, the istihada, and that can be blood that continuously exits from the woman to the extent that she may go make wudu, and by the time she comes to pray already again more, blood is exiting perhaps. So then how does she pray? Her situation is the same as a person who has, uh, what do they call it, the incontinence or something? When incontinence, when a person constantly has some uh, uh, urine drops exiting from him, for example. In those cases, what do those people do then? He goes and makes wudu, by the time he comes to pray, already some more urine drops have exited. Or she goes and makes wudu, comes to pray, already some blood has exited outside of the period blood. Because if it's period blood, she wouldn't be praying, praying in the first place. So outside of the period blood. So what do they do in those circumstances? As soon as they make wudu, their wudu technically breaks. So in the sunnah, it is highlighted then, in their circumstance... They go and make wudu, purify themselves, make wudu, and then uh, uh, apply something to protect themselves in that area, and then come and pray, even if there are there is liquid exiting from them, even if. They make wudu, protect themselves with sanitary items and the likes, and then pray, even if it is exiting thereafter. So for the woman, it is mentioned she can do her wudu when the prayer time enters. She has to wait for the prayer time to enter. Then she goes and makes wudu and prays. Fajr. Then when dhuhr time enters, some of the scholars, they say what she can do is wait. Right until the end of Dhuhr time is approaching, then she can go and make wudu and pray her Dhuhr, and then almost instantly afterwards the time for Asr enters, so she can pray that as well. Rather than having to do the washing and everything five times a day then, she can suffice with three times a day because she can do the same with Maghrib. Wait till the end time of Maghrib, then go cleanse herself and everything, pray the Maghrib, and then Isha time enters very soon, and she prays that as well. 
So in that way, three purifications are needed rather than five. That we generally covered last time. Then the third item, the pre-seminal fluid. The pre-seminal fluid. And there is a hadith about this from Ali ibn Abi Talib. رضي الله عنه قال كنت رجلا مذاء فأمرت المقداد ابن الأسود أن يسأل النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فسأله فقال فيه الوضوء متفق عليه ولفظ للبخاري Ali ibn Abi Talib radiyallahu anhu, he says that I was a man who was madha, meaning there used to be uh, a lot of the pre-seminal fluid that used to exit from his private areas. He said, so I told Al-Miqdad ibn Al-Aswad, to go and ask the Prophet ﷺ about that. Meaning he was obviously concerned that this pre-seminal fluid that exits, breaks your wudu, how does he pray, etc. He sent Al-Miqdad ibn Al-Aswad to go and ask the Prophet ﷺ about this affair, what to do. So when he went and asked the Messenger, the Messenger ﷺ said, Fihi. Al-wudu. That in regards to that, he has to do wudu. If the pre-seminal fluid exits, then upon that person is to make wudu. This narration then highlights this third issue. The third issue being the pre-seminal fluid and the pre-seminal fluid used to exit from Ali ibn Abi Talib. And that can be from uh, uh, intense thought. Perhaps a person through intense thought could end up with that pre-seminal fluid exiting from him. Or it could be from other forms of uh, uh, intimacy that the pre-seminal fluid may exit from him. So Ali ibn Abi Talib radiyallahu anhu in his younger days of strength, then this used to occur to him that the pre-seminal fluid would exit. And so initially, he used to think that he had to do the full ghusl. And it's mentioned in some narrations that he actually used to go and do the full ghusl every single time. That initially he used to go and do the full ghusl. Remember, we're not talking about semen exiting, the pre-seminal fluid. And it's described in the books of fiqh, the, the transparent uh, type of li- uh, thick kind of liquid, transparent kind of liquid that exits from an individual and that is prior to the actual semen. And so he used to think he had to go do ghusl every single time, and that's what he used to do, believing that the pre-seminal fluid takes the same ruling as the actual semen. Because if the semen exits upon you is ghusl. فَكَانَ يَغْتَسِلُ لِكُلِّ صَلَاهِ so he used to go and make ghusl for every prayer up until his skin started to crack from excessive water and washing, dry skin, and it started to crack his skin. So when that started to happen and this difficulty occurred upon him now, a man who had a lot of the pre-seminal fluid that would occur from him, and he was making ghusl for every single prayer, ended up with dry skin and cracking skin. So now he was in a situation and he needed to find out, is there some other ruling to his circumstance? But he was shy to ask the Prophet ﷺ directly. And that's why he sent 
Al-Miqdad ibn al-Aswad. He sent Al-Miqdad ibn al-Aswad to go and ask the Prophet sallallahu So he went and asked the Messenger and the Messenger sallallahu highlighted that the pre-seminal fluid, the ruling for it is only wudu, not the full ghusl. Only the wudu is required for the pre-seminal fluid because it is not actually semen and doesn't therefore have the ruling of semen. So what do we learn from this? Once again, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan highlights, that we learn from this narration the importance of Su'al Ahlil Ilm. Returning back to the scholars and asking the scholars. And of course, when we talk about that at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, then obviously all of them return back to him. And then afterwards, the same principle applies that we return back to the scholars, to Ahlul Ilm, the ulama, those whom Allah said about them. فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of remembrance, the people of knowledge, the ulama, if you do not know. Secondly, it is permissible and there's no harm in sending someone to ask on your behalf if that person is reliable. Meaning if you send someone to ask for you who is unreliable, he may come back and give you an answer which isn't exactly the answer that he received. But due to his unreliability in narrating and his uh, skill in doing so, he comes back and ends up giving you a partial answer or ends up giving you even a mistaken answer. Because maybe he didn't understand the answer in the first place. And then he comes and narrates to you upon his misunderstanding of the answer. So you can send someone, but a person who has ability and understanding to be able to comprehend the answer and then uh, relay that answer to you. If a situation arises, you need to do that. Whereas otherwise, generally... The scholars, they say, beware of the two memes. The letter meme in the Arabic language. The scholars, they say, beware of the two letter memes. One is the mustakbir and the other one is the mustahi. The mustakbir or mutakabbir, the one who is too arrogant to go and ask. The mutakabbir or mustakbir. The one who is too arrogant to go and ask. He thinks he's above lowering himself to this teacher to ask him or to the scholar to ask him. He feels he's too high and he shouldn't have to humble himself and ask this man or that man. So arrogance prevents him from learning his religion. So the scholars, they say, beware of that letter meme, the mustakbir. The one whose arrogance and haughtiness prevents him from seeking knowledge, prevents him from attending the gatherings of knowledge, prevents him from asking the people of knowledge, the scholars, the ulama. And the second meme the scholars say beware of is the mustahi, the one who is shy and his shyness prevents him from learning His shyness prevents him from asking. He has a question. He wants to clarify something. But his shyness stops him from going and asking. And that should not be the case. Shyness should not prevent you from learning about your religion. It is mentioned about the women of the Ansar. The Ansar who were the residents of Medina. Aisha radiallahu anha said about those women, Ni'ma nisa al-ansar, Lam yakun yamna'ahunna hayauhunna min an yas'alna 
عن أمور دينهن. She said, how good are the women of the Ansar? Their shyness, which is a good characteristic and etiquette for the women to have, but she said that good characteristic and etiquette of shyness did not prevent them though from asking about the affairs of their religion. Scholars, they say for the women, a good etiquette is to have shyness. But Aisha, she highlights, radiallahu anha, this good etiquette women are supposed to have didn't prevent them though from asking about the affairs of their religion. And when you go into the chapter of purification in detail, you see how some of the female companions, they used to ask questions or like Ali ibn Abi Talib, have the questions sent at least, asking about their garments where period blood got on it. Asking the messenger, what do we do? Some of the period blood got onto this garment. What do we do? Their shyness, that is something to be shy of. That the period blood of the woman got onto her clothes. And now what do I do? Can I pray in those clothes or not? It's a question of shyness. And yet they would send those questions and ask them. So Aisha said, how good are these women? Their shyness never stopped them from learning about the religion. So that's why the scholars, they say, beware of those two memes. The meme that stands for Mustakbir, his arrogance prevents him from attending and learning and asking. Or Mustahi, his shyness prevents him from maybe even attending. And if he attends from asking and learning about his religion. So here it mentions how he had some shyness in this affair, but nevertheless, at least, he sent someone to have that question asked. And the important affair here is that the pre-seminal fluid indicates, or the hadith indicates that it is a nullifier of the wudu. The messenger told him, وسلم, no ghusl is needed, but wudu is Therefore, pre-seminal fluid is a nullifier of wudu. If it wasn't, the messenger would have said not even. Wudu is needed in that case. But wudu was needed and that order was given. Highlighting that the pre-seminal fluid is from the nullifiers of the wudu in that case. So we have now sleep with the detail we gave about that. We have the... The, uh, the uh, bleeding that occurs from the woman outside and in addition to her period, the istihaba, and we have the pre-seminal fluid. Then after that, you remember we read the chapter last time without repeating that again, but there was a long list of things that break your wudu. We're working our way through all of those. Number four from the affairs, do they or do they not? Break your wudu. Do they or do they not? And we're talking about number four now, which is kissing. If a man kisses his wife, does that break his wudu or not? That is the fourth topic to discuss here now. We have a hadith where it is mentioned uh, from Aisha radiallahu anha. أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قبل بعض نسائه ثم خرج إلى الصلاة ولم يتوضأ. That the and there is some dispute about this narration, but some of the scholars do hold it to be authentic. That the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم kissed one of his wives and then. Exited the home and went to pray without making wudu again. That's what the narration says. The Prophet ﷺ kissed one of his one of his wives, and it appears to be from the other narrations, Aisha radiallahu anha, and then he left home to go to the masjid and pray and never made wudu. The narration therefore seems to indicate 
that physical contact with a woman, kissing a woman, kissing your wife, does not break your wudu. That's what this narration seems to indicate. والحديث يدل على أن لمس المرأة لا ينقض الوضوء بينما الآية وهي قوله تعالى The hadith seems to indicate that kissing your wife, the woman, physical contact in that way does not break your wudu. But the ayah in the Qur'an, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا قُمْتُمْ إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ فَاغْسِلُوا وُجُوهَكُمْ وَأَيْدِيَكُمْ إِلَى الْمَرَافِضِ وَمَصَحِبِرُوا أُسِيكُمْ وَأَرْجُلَكُمْ إِلَى الْكَعْبِينَ وَإِنْ كُنْتُمْ جُنُوبًا فَاطَّهَرُوا وَإِنْ كُنْتُمْ مَرْضَى أَوْ عَلَى سَفَرٍ أَوْ جَاءَ أَحَدٌ مِنْكُمْ مِنَ الْغَائِطِ أَوْ لَامَسْتُمُ النِّسَاءِ فَلَمْ تَجِدُوا مَا أَنْفَتَيَمَّ مُسَعِيدًا طَيِّبًا The ayah here in Surah Al-Ma'idah which we covered briefly before, O oh, you who believe when you stand to the prayer, then wash your faces and your hands up to your elbows and wipe on your heads and wash your feet up to your ankles. And then the ayah goes on, and if you are in a state of impurity, then purify yourselves. And if you are ill or you are upon a journey or uh, uh, you have to answer the call of nature, use the toilet. Or if you touch the women, then you do not find water, you can make tayammum. Therefore, if you have to use the toilet or you touch a woman, kissing etc., physical contact, then if you can't find water, you can do tayammum. Indicating that the physical contact with the woman is one of the nullifiers of the wudu in the ayah. The ayah has put that alongside a person having to use the toilet, which we know obviously breaks your wudu. And physical contact with the woman is also in the ayah, right next to that one, highlighting that physical contact with the woman, kissing, etc., is a nullifier of the wudu. Because Allah is telling us, either find water then and make wudu, and if you cannot, after having touched a woman, then go and do tayammum then, indicating that physical contact, that kissing, etc., is a nullifier of the wudu. So the hadith indicates it is not, but the ayah appears to indicate it is. So how do we explain that and how do we understand that? Aslul mulamasah al-lams bil-yad. Hada huwa al-asl. Touching the woman, maybe a person may say, well, perhaps this ayah is to be interpreted in a particular way, a particular type of physical contact. But in the Arabic language, the asl, of la masa lumps is touch. It is to touch. That is the asal of the meaning. That is the default understanding of a lumps and mulamasa touching. So if we go by that, it would simply indicate the physical contact with a woman breaks your wudu. But there are explanations of the scholars on this particular issue, and there are three main opinions as to whether physical contact, kissing, etc. with the wife, the woman, breaks your wudu or not. The first opinion is that physical contact, the physical touch and contact and kissing, etc. breaks the wudu whether it was done with desire or not even. The very fact that physical contact has occurred breaks your wudu. That is an opinion. And one of the evidences they use is that ayah. Because the ayah 
would indicate that because la mastumun nisa if you touch the women literally that's what it would mean literally if you touch the women physical contact kissing etc so the first opinion is that it breaks your wudu regardless of whether you say but it wasn't out of desire desire no desire physical contact with the woman breaks your wudu that is an opinion of some of the scholars and that is the opinion of al-imam shafi'i and other scholars as well but if they take that opinion there's a problem what is the problem the hadith the hadith mentioned the messenger kissed aisha radiyallahu anha they went and prayed without making wudu so how are they going to say no any physical contact like that kissing etc breaks your wudu what are they going to say about the hadith like we mentioned at the start some scholars believe that this hadith is actually weak and that's what they believe they believe that this hadith is not authentic and some scholars have that opinion about this hadith al-imam al-bukhari declared the narration to be weak So some of them believe the narration is weak. So if the narration is weak and cannot be used as an evidence, that's gone. What's left then? The ayah in the Quran, which indicates that it is a nullifier of the wudu. So that is the first opinion. The second opinion, physical contact with a woman, with your wife, etc., whether with desire or without desire, regardless, none of it breaks your wudu. The complete opposite. Physical contact with a woman, with your wife, etc. Whether it's with desire even or without, it doesn't break your wudu. And this is the opinion of a group of the scholars also, the Hanafiyyah are from amongst them, that say it does not break a wudu, and obviously their primary evidence is going to be the hadith that the Prophet ﷺ kissed his wife and then went and prayed without making wudu again. Uh, and so they believe the narration to be valid, and there are chains of narration etc that could uh, mean that the narration is valid so they base their opinion upon that but then for them they have a problem which is they now need to explain the ayah the other way around so how do they explain the ayah in a nutshell they say that the mulamasah, the touching and the physical contact that is being mentioned in the ayah is talking about actual full intercourse. That's the meaning of the touching the woman. The intercourse, not just a kiss or physical contact with the hand etc. But the actual intercourse, they say that is what is meant by the ayah. The third opinion is that if the physical contact with the woman occurs due to desire, then in that case it is a nullifier of the wudu. And that is because if the physical contact occurs due to desire, then there is a possibility of falling into the situation of Ali ibn Abi Talib, the pre-seminal fluid. There is the possibility you are now uh, placing yourself in a circumstance where that possibility is open upon you, that the pre-seminal fluid may occur from you. So they say, if it is with desire, it breaks your wudu, And if it is without desire, 
No desire of that nature involved. Physical contact occurs between the husband and the wife. Then that does not break your wudu. It's like we were doing some book of fiqh once with Shaykh Ubaid al-Jabari. Hafizahullah. And it was something to do with this topic. I don't remember the exact detail, but something to do with this kind of topic. About touching with desire or without desire. And I remember just the example. The Shaykh said maybe the husband holds the wife, uh, his wife's hand from uh, in the house or somewhere. Just holds his wife's hand. Maybe you sit down and you just hold the hand for a moment. He said, just like that between a husband and a wife, a casual contact which occurs, casually touching the hand of your wife, he said, you'd have to have a problem with you if that was with desire every time. Casually between the husband and the wife, maybe you just sit down and you just put your hand there. Nothing in it, nothing in it. No desire involved in that, casually in the home. No problem with that, the Sheikh said in that case, upon this opinion then, if it is without any desire, casually, in the house, here, there, then in that case, it does not break your wudu. But if it is a contact of desire, then it breaks your wudu. That is the third opinion. The evidence they are going to use then is the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ when he kissed one of his wives, Aisha radiallahu anha. That was of course a casual affair. Nothing of desire in that, but he kissed his wife and then left the house and went to the masjid. Not an affair or a contact or a situation of desire. A casual kiss and then departed from his home. So they say that indicates that if it is something without any desire, then that does not break your wudu. So those are the opinions that are mentioned uh, regarding this particular issue. And uh, all of those opinions, they exist. And what appears to be closer perhaps to the truth is away, away from the opinion saying that any contact breaks wudu. That would seem to be an opinion that is perhaps a little further away from the truth, that any contact would break your wudu. But perhaps something closer to the third opinion is more balanced in the affair. Allah alam. So that is in regards to the touching of the woman. It would be a nullifier of the wudu if it was with desire. Then after that, the common nullifier of the wudu, which is breaking wind. Breaking wind. And there is a narration, or there are some narrations about that. The hadith of Abu Hurairah, radiyallahu anhu, qal, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, إِذَا وَجَدَ أَحَدُكُمْ فِي بَطْنِهِ شَيْئًا فَأَشْكَلَ عَلَيْهِ أَخَرَجَ مِنْهُ شَيْءٌ أَمْ لَا فَلَا يَخْرُجَنَّ مِنَ الْمَسْجِدِ حَتَّى يَسْمَعَ صَوْتًا أَوْ يَجِدَ رِيحًا أخرجه مسلم in this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ says, If one of you finds some discomfort in his stomach, like when you're bloated and perhaps then you're about to break wind, you find some discomfort in your stomach, and it's a bit problematic, it's a bit discomfortable, uncomfortable, and from that discomfort, you think that you've ended up breaking wind. But you're not sure. You got some discomfort in your stomach and you think you broke wind. Maybe a small amount. You think you just broke some wind. But you're not sure. So the messenger said in that case, do not exit from the mosque. Meaning don't break your prayer and go. Your wudu hasn't broken. Until you hear an actual 
sound of that wind breaking or you smell from that wind having broken until you hear the wind breaking or smell that the wind has indeed broken besides that then do not exit from your prayer break off from your prayer upon the assumption or the doubt that you think some wind broke because of the discomfort you had in your stomach and it felt like maybe some wind broke but you're not sure then do not assume it to have exited and do not break off from your prayer and assume your wudu is broken until you actually hear it or smell it that's what this hadith mentions so here it is the issue of the breaking of the wind so what do we learn from here there are a few things firstly upon the apparent of the narration that we've just seen there the principle in fiqh that certainty cannot be removed with doubt certainty cannot be removed with doubt if you it's like the general example we've given before imagine somebody prayed maghrib today and they know with absolute certainty they made wudu before maghrib and they went and prayed maghrib two hours ago three hours ago since then now isha is coming up they think to themselves after maghrib did i break my wudu or not you know for definite you made your wudu at maghrib time and prayed maghrib after maghrib now it's been three four hours isha is coming you think to yourself am i still on wudu or did i break it after maghrib prayer you can't remember you're unsure so what's the ruling You've still got wudu in that case. Because you are certain you made the wudu at Maghrib time. Certain. That is certainty. And then after Maghrib up until now in these few hours, you have a doubt. Maybe I broke it, I can't remember. It's a doubt. Whereas prior to Maghrib, you were upon certainty of having made the wudu. That certainty cannot be taken away with this doubt. You cannot say, well, I can't remember. Maybe I broke my wudu after maghrib. I can't remember. I better just go make wudu. I'll consider it to have been broken. No. If you can't remember and it's only a doubt, that does not override the certainty. The other way around, imagine you made wudu at maghrib time and you prayed maghrib. Then after maghrib, you remember with certainty having broken your wudu. You remember with certainty after praying maghrib, you broke your wudu. Now that was two or three hours ago, Isha is coming and you're thinking to yourself, so after Maghrib, I remember absolutely I broke my wudu. I remember after the prayer, my wudu broke. But then did I make my wudu again after that or not? Did I make my wudu again or not after that? You can't remember. So with certainty, you can remember you broke your wudu after Maghrib prayer. You remember going to the toilet or something. And then since then, you have a doubt as to whether you refreshed your wudu. So now the ruling is, you don't have wudu, because your certainty is that you had broken it, your doubt is that you had refreshed it. The doubt cannot override the certainty. So in this case, you have no wudu, go make it. Whereas in the first case, your certainty was you were upon wudu, your doubt was whether it was broken. The doubt cannot override the certainty. Therefore, you didn't have to make wudu in that case. So here, that principle is highlighted in this hadith as well. That you are upon wudu and you're praying. You feel some discomfort, but you don't smell anything. You don't hear anything. So there is nothing definitive. Nothing for definite that your wudu is broken. Nothing for definite that you actually broke wind. 
So therefore the rule would be that your wudu is intact, your certainty is there, the doubt cannot override it. That is a general principle in the religion. The second thing that we can learn from this, the obvious is that breaking wind is a nullifier of the wudu, that is clear. Breaking wind is a nullifier of the wudu because the messenger said, don't leave the prayer unless you do smell something and hear something. So if you do smell or hear something and you've broken wind, then the hadith is saying, then in that case, do leave the prayer and go repeat your wudu, etc. Then, So breaking wind is from the nullifiers of the wudu. Also, if a, pr- if a person enters into the prayer, you start the prayer, then from the sunnah, from the rulings of the religion, you are not allowed to just stop your prayer and go and do something else and then just come back and start again afterwards. Once you enter into the prayer, you are now bound by that prayer. You are not supposed to just break it off and go, whether it is obligatory or sunnah, fard, nafal, either. Once you enter, Allahu Akbar, you enter into the prayer, you are supposed to finish that prayer. You're not supposed to just break it off and say, oh, I forgot I need to do this or that, and then come back and start again afterwards. Once you enter, you have entered. You're not supposed to exit unless there is a necessity a necessity to exit. For example, if you heard the wind breaking or smelt it, now there's a necessity to exit from the prayer because your wudu's gone. You have to go make wudu again. Your prayer is invalid. Uh, other reasons we mentioned some time ago now, years ago, when we did the chapter of prayer, Kitab salah There are other reasons. Out of necessity, you can break your wudu. Uh, you can break your prayer like. Non-obligatory, what about generally, for all the prayers? If there is a situation of necessity, the scholars, they say, imagine you are now in the prayer, imagine now in the jama'ah, you're praying in the jama'ah, and the person next to you collapses, falls down, collapses, unconscious, something's happened to him, he just falls and collapses, on the floor, collapsed next to you. Are you going to say, no, I can't break my prayer, I have to carry on. And the other person next to him, everybody just carries on. You have somebody in a medical emergency collapsed on the floor, unconscious. Permissible to break off your prayer, then help him. But, he, but the scholars, they say, only permissible for those around him. Not the whole, everybody. Just those around him, it is permissible for you to break your prayer, help him, pick him up, carry him, call the ambulance, whatever needs to be done. Maybe he's had a heart attack, maybe he's had some stroke, maybe he has something. So permissible now, they say basically in the books of fiqh, permissible to break your prayer in order to save another. In order to save another person, permissible to break off your prayer. You could be praying and suddenly you hear a huge explosion. Imagine you're at home playing, praying, and you hear a huge explosion from next door and screams and all types of things and... Uh, somebody screaming, my child is in the house, my child, my child. Permissible for you to break the wudu and see if you can help that child come out of the house to save another. They say, if you're in that situation, you're allowed to break off the prayer to save another person if that is what the situation is. Uh, Sheikh Al-Fawzan gives some examples here. He says, imagine you're praying um, like outside somewhere. You're praying and there's a well next to you and the wells in the olden days they weren't necessarily big walls coming off the ground they were in the ground and you just put your bucket in meaning you could walk and fall in so imagine you're praying next to a well the sheikh mentions you're praying here and you see a blind man coming a blind man coming and he's about to walk right into this well next to you you're allowed to break off the prayer and grab him otherwise he's going to fall down into the well to save another those kinds of examples are permissible for a person to break their prayer to save another individual. So, hmm. in that situation, do they just return back to the prayer or do 
if you've broken your prayer like that, uh, then you'd have to come back and restart your prayer. Pray your prayer again. Another example the Sheikh gives is if you're a fireman. He says if you're a fireman, you're praying and all of a sudden your alarm goes off in your station or whatever. Permissible, break off your prayer, go straight away. Because for the firemen, every second counts to get to that place to save the people. If you're praying, the Sheikh says you're the firemen and your station alarm goes off, you can break your prayer and go straight away. So those kinds of examples. But... What about a situation? In fact, we don't need to do all of that. That's extra from this section. So the point here was that if you smell something or you uh, 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 hear something, then you can break off your prayer because your wudu is gone. So people always say that I know I broke wind. I felt it. I felt it exit. But there was no smell and there was no sound. Happens. Many people, they say, I absolutely felt it. Absolutely felt it come out of the passageway. The wind. But there was no smell and there was no sound. But you absolutely felt it exit. So now what? Broke it? So one person saying it breaks your wudu, another saying it doesn't break your wudu, does it or not? The hadith says don't leave your prayer unless you smell something or hear something. What if you don't but you feel it exit? Sometimes, like for example, if you close your armpits, you can, make, you can, you can feel something but nothing actually comes up. It's just the sound. I don't know if this is scientifically proven, but... <laughs> doesn't hearing, hearing or feeling, doesn't that just, I guess this is it, doesn't that just mean certainty? doesn't mean you have to hear it or hear it or... Smell it. Yeah, it just means you have to be certain you've got... Refutations are coming out in strength. <laughs> it has to be the smell of the sound, it's from Shaitan. So if you feel something exiting, it doesn't break your will. Ah, uh, 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 about the whisperings of the shaitanic. So that's another narration, uh huh? Anybody else? So the, are you talking about there's sometimes when you when you fart, you know that you did, even if you don't hear it or smell it. But I'm talking about that's the, what we're talking the, about. The sly ones that you don't know. <laughs> we're talking about a person breaks wind, breaks wind, but you don't hear anything you don't smell anything but you felt it come out then you're everybody knows that yeah. you, you'll, you'll know that you feel it coming out but you don't smell anything and you don't hear anything the hadith is mentioning those two hearing or smelling otherwise 
then the certainty isn't broken by the doubt. But sometimes you feel it. The scholars, they mention these points. Some of them, they say, look, if you don't smell anything, you don't hear anything, then it could just be whisperings of the shaitan upon you. And you shouldn't just go off breaking your prayer every single time you think, oh, it maybe it felt like possibly, possibly, possibly. Then you don't always just break your prayer and say your wudu is broken. Those are whisperings of the shaitan upon a person maybe. However, some of the scholars have mentioned that this hadith, the messenger was trying to emphasize this principle basically that certainty is not broken with doubt. So he was giving examples of things that are certainty. So if you now break wind and then smell it, for certain you've broken wind. You break wind and you hear it, for certain you've broken wind. Those are two methods of certainty in breaking wind. But that doesn't mean they are the only two methods of certainty in breaking wind. If you absolutely feel it, and you feel it exit, and you know absolutely 100% it has exited from you, you felt it, then you have certainty. And so some scholars say it would be included even if you didn't hear anything, even if you didn't smell anything, but you have certainty. You absolutely felt it come out. Then your wudu is broken. Because they say the point of the narration is about certainty. But it's important to note that has to be certainty. As for like the narration says, somebody's not feeling good, they have some discomfort in their stomach, and it feels like something is moving down the passage, and then they start getting doubts. Did something exit? Didn't it exit? That doubt does not break your wudu until you physically feel it exit from your body, from the passage. You feel that, then okay, now you are certain you felt it exit, and you know that it exited. So upon that, some of the scholars say that would be considered certainty then. And that would be the same as smelling it, the same as hearing it. It would be the same physically, literally feeling it exit. So uh, that would also then be considered certainty. And the point then is, the point of this section is that breaking wind is a nullifier of the wudu. And that's the one we'll perhaps stop on this time. The next time we'll start with touching your own private parts. Does that break your wudu or not? If a person touched their own private parts, it doesn't mean uh, 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 with desire, even without desire. person just happens to touch his private parts for some reason, makes physical contact with them. Does that break your wudu or not? And then also after that we have things like vomiting. Does vomiting break the wudu of a person? Uh, nosebleeds, another type of blood exiting from a person. Does that break the wudu of a person? Um, eating camel meat. Eating camel meat. And also when somebody dies... The washing of that body, the person or the people who do the washing of the body of the deceased, is there wudu broken now or not? Those few topics, inshallah ta'ala, we'll start with those from the next session. Uh, next session, inshallah ta'ala, in two weeks' time, we'll do those topics. Any questions up to there then? So babies, changing the nappies of babies. You're obviously going to be making contact 
with possibly the the urine, the fecal matter, the uh, private parts. There's going to be contact with those types of things when changing the nappy of a baby or a very young toddler, etc. Does that break your wudu or not? Any fatwa? Any mufti? Does it break your wudu or not? Some scholars, um, Sheikh bin Baz, pretty certain it was Sheikh bin Baz, but everybody can check back. Rahimahullah, he said it would be, I mean, it would come under the topic that we're going to discuss next week about touching the private parts. You're going to be touching the private parts of that baby, changing the nappy, etc. We're going to get to it next time, but there are different opinions about whether it breaks your wudu or not. Let's assume touching the private parts breaks your wudu. Even on that opinion, some of the scholars, they say that this scenario is excused because of the mashaqqah that is involved. Imagine a new mother and she's changing the nappy of the baby five times a day, six times a day, eight times a day, ten times a day. Then are we going to tell her every single time you do that, you're going to have to go make wudu again? Every single time you change the nappy, you have to make wudu again? There's a difficulty and a burden in that. So some of the scholars, and I think it was a Sheikh bin Baz, ta'ala, he said it's exempt. That the, the mother typically then would be exempt from that scenario, even if the contact was made with the private parts. As for contact with the, the urine of the baby, etc., that you just simply wash off. That doesn't break your wudu. Yeah, that you wash off. But the private parts would be the issue. But many of the scholars, they say that would be exempt. And then as we're going to see next time, there are opinions that say it doesn't break your wudu in the first place to touch the private parts without desire. The question should be saved for next time. Because it all depends on which opinion you're going to follow. There are two main opinions about touching the private parts. Two main opinions. We'll see the details next time. One opinion says it breaks your wudu. And there are some narrations to prove that. Touching your private parts, even without desire, like in the shower. You're in the shower. You have a shower. You make your wudu. And then afterwards, maybe you're drying yourself and accidentally contact is made with your private parts. You've just made wudu and everything in the shower. You're coming and drying yourself now. So has your wudu broken? Was there any desire there? You're just drying yourself with a towel and some contact occurred. So one opinion says, your wudu's gone. But the other opinion, there is another opinion saying, no, it's not. There was no desire there. And your private parts, as the hadith says, minka. It's just another body part, your hand, your arm, your shoulder. It's another body part. Another body part, skin, like the rest of your body and skin. Contact is made there without any desire. No problem, like contact is made anywhere else without any desire. So it all depends on the two opinions. According to one opinion, that would not break your wudu. On the other, it would. But the details and the hadith will cover those next time, inshallah. So if you are leading a salah and you have to break the salah due to hearing a loud noise outside something to save someone's life, what other people following the salah are supposed to do? Uh, imagine now the imam is leading the prayer and his wudu breaks. Some smell is smelt or some sound is heard and the imam's wudu breaks. So now the imam has to do what? Has no choice. He has to leave the prayer because it is impermissible. Haram. It's a sin for him to carry on with the prayer. His wudu is broken. He has to go, get out and go, or the secret passageway, go any side, disappear. Go make wudu. And when he goes, the people behind him, one person is just going to step up and take over the duty of the imam and lead the rest of the prayer. They wouldn't all break their prayer because of that. Imam's prayer breaks, he goes, a person from the first row steps up 
and takes over the duty of the imam. That's why the scholars, they say it's mentioned in some narrations of the sunnah, behind the imam should be the people of understanding of fiqh, of memorization. So that imagine the imam is leading isha prayer now, and in the first rak'ah his wudu breaks. If the first row of people here now, not a single one of them has memorized anything, or barely anything, and they are all incapable of stepping up, then what are you going to do? Somebody from the fourth row is going to make his way forward? That's why they say the people right behind the imam should be the capable people. And if anything happens, one of those capable people can step up. Anything else? Yeah, that was the one that I said, okay, forget it, there's no need for it. <laughs> so that, that if you're praying, uh, imagine now you walk in and you start praying your sunnah. Imagine, for example, right now, we're about to pray right now. Somebody walked in right now and they start praying the tahiyyatul masjid. They just say, Allahu Akbar, the two raka'at for entering the mosque. As soon as they say, Allahu Akbar, I say, okay, that's it, we'll conclude that. And then the imam steps up and he's about to start the prayer. They just started their two nafal for entering the mosque. So now the scholars have mentioned, there. there's a narration, there is no supererogatory prayer alongside a, an obligatory prayer. When an obligatory prayer is occurring, then there is no supererogatory prayer that can uh, override that or take priority over that. That's why many of the scholars like a Shaykh Al-Ithaymeen, they say, in that scenario, if you're praying like Tahiyatul Masjid or Sunnah, and the Iqama gets done, a Shaykh Al-Ithaymeen said, if you are in your final raka'ah of this Sunnah prayer, supererogatory prayer, you're in your final raka'ah, like Tahiyatul Masjid, you're in your second raka'ah, and the Iqama starts. From the moment the Iqama starts to it finishing, to straightening the lines and the rows and the imam actually saying Allahu Akbar, you still have a minute, maybe two minutes, maybe three minutes, depending on how long it takes to straighten the rows, line everything up, and then the imam says Allahu Akbar. So the shaykh says in that case, complete your second rak'ah, but make it light. In your second rak'ah, don't start al-Baqarah. Make it very light, short, short, and finish it, and you can still catch the Imam and the Jama'ah, when it starts. But if you walk in Allahu Akbar, Tahiyatul Masjid, just when you start, you hear suddenly the Muaddin or, or uh, whoever has started the Iqama. Now you know, there's no way you can finish two full raka'at before they already start their prayer, maybe even get into the Fatiha, into the Surah, maybe even into the Ruku' by the time you finish your second raka'at, your prayer. In that case, as Shaykh Al-Ithameen mentioned, break it off. You're allowed to break it off and join the jama'ah because your supererogatory prayer cannot take priority over the jama'ah prayer. Uh, there are some differences over that particular topic, but that is the fatwa of Shaykh Al-Ithameen. If you're in your second raka'ah, just finish it quickly and join. If you're in your first, you're not going to make it. Break it off and join. You can if you're late, if you didn't pray them before the two sunnah of fajr, if you didn't pray them before the fajr prayer, then you can't pray them after. Anybody else? No, four or five minutes is too long. If somebody's right here in, in the area, the vicinity of where the imam is going to be and the, the other people, they should follow that, what we just mentioned. If you're in your second raka'ah, the iqama starts, and you know you're right here, the imam's going to stand here, the first row's going to stand right behind you. You've either got to make sure you're going to finish your prayer by the time the iqama is done, or just very soon after the iqama is done. If you're not going to manage that, then you can't hold up this whole area and the prayer and the imam and the people. Then you got to break your prayer and join with them. It's differed over. Sheikh Al-Fawzan says it's differed over between the scholars about breaking your prayer in those circumstances. 
but some of them they allow it. Sheikh Al-Athaymeen, he allows it in that circumstance with the general evidence that no prayer takes priority over the obligatory prayer. So you could use that as an evidence and break off and just join when that happens in that situation. So is there any actual hadith about your parents calling you in the nafid? Nafid and your parents calling you? There is some narration about that. I don't remember the details of it in the fiqh, but there is a narration. We can check that for next time, inshallah. Mm. Anybody else? You know, what if a person comes into the masjid and they start a prayer, but they're praying this in Mawadah because they're troubled or something, and they don't know when the time of the masjid is when they're standing, so they stand for prayer, does he then finish his actual obligatory prayer and then join in, or does he break that prayer and then join in with the jama'ah, pray whatever he needs to pray, and then rejoin back in? Mm. A person walks into the mosque, he's unusual or uh, uh, unfamiliar with that mosque, doesn't know when the jama'ah is going to be, so he starts his obligatory prayer. Maybe the previous one he hasn't prayed yet. And then the jama'ah starts. I mean the situation, Allah alam, it's a little bit different if it's a traveler. The traveler, uh, his rulings are different anyway. It's not an obligation as such, the same as the resident. I, I'm sure that kind of situation you would probably end up with various statements again about what he should do in that case. Some would probably most likely say that he breaks it off and comes and joins the same prayer, the same intention with the jama'ah. Because again, same kind of reasoning, you can't pray anything else when the jama'ah is going on. And then all of the other contextual evidences that the imam has the right in the mosque. Nobody else has the right to be praying separately or any jama'ah separately. The jama'ah is going on, the imam is praying, everybody in the mosque should be with the imam, with the jama'ah. So you could have those types of evidences indicating that. But I'm sure there's more detail we'll have to see, inshallah. We'll have to conclude upon that. It is time for the prayer. Inshallah ta'ala, we'll carry on with the next section in two weeks. وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم